The Great Improbability. This is part six of the audio drama. It has crossed my mind There's so little time That we lived In the sweet forever The Great Improbability An autobiographical mystery by the people of Earth David Sayer, author To this odd friendship, I did have something to offer. My parents had given me a well-equipped workshop, in the hope, I suppose, of some connection, an emergence, a smile perhaps, even a hint of affection. They were unrewarded. The shop enlarged my membrane, but did not open any outward channels. It allowed me to experiment and to build, but not to the benefit of others. Until the wheelchair project. Because of her special needs, Amy had been assigned an aide on a part-time basis, a large Jamaican woman called Miss Audrey. Aides are as essential to the school's running as sergeants are to the armies, but they are paid less. They have no collective bargaining unit, and there is always someone waiting to take their job should they falter. This should produce a staff of demoralized malcontents, according to my studies with lots of passive-aggressive behavior and ingenious methods of avoiding work. And occasionally, it does. But on the whole, aides like Miss Audrey seem to work longer than they have to and seek out work they don't have to do. Our business management teacher tells us, with what seems to me a perverse satisfaction, The great motivators in any organization are fear and greed. Aren't some workers motivated by commitment to clients or customers, I ask? or loyalty, or discovering something new, or friendship with fellow workers, or satisfaction in good work. He smiles. It's a patronizing smirk, Amy tells me, as I can't tell one smile from another. Well, David, try using those rewards to maintain productivity from the average worker in the real world, and you'll quickly go back to fear and greed. Miss Audrey isn't an average worker. I guess because I find her advising and tutoring after hours running errands, making contributions out of her small earnings, and doing lots of hugging and so forth. So I enlisted her help in specifying a mechanized wheelchair and later in presenting it. Miss Audrey knew Amy would not accept a gift from a fellow loser, so she constructed an elaborate story about a successful alumna who had invented such things and made a fortune manufacturing them. This alumna, Miss Audrey maintained, was making anonymous donations and our school had received a state-of-the-art mechanized wheelchair and would Amy be willing to try it out and provide advice to its designer? Amy would. Her advice turned out to be quite good. Miss Audrey quietly passed it on to me and periodically I made Amy's improvements and some of my own for her to test. We added mechanisms to push and pull, to grasp and twist, to lift and swing all adapted to Amy's previously limited range of motion and control. As this cycle progressed, our little chariot gradually became a fast, maneuverable, responsive extension of Amy's deformed body, and she became agile and animated. Encouraged by this success, I decided to develop an advanced type of speech synthesizer, 
test it on Amy, and progressively improve its function. I knew Amy had volunteered for an experimental program in brain-driven computer commands and had excelled above other subjects. She could make a cursor move across a screen just by thinking about it, with some electrodes fastened to spots on her scalp. By this time, I was in my 20s and had been assigned a career counselor to help me move out to that real world. He had recently retired from a company working on artificial intelligence systems and thought this would be a good path for me. He had some theories about human-computer links and how they might evolve the way natural intelligence had evolved. The more I thought about working with Amy on such an experiment, the more excited I became. Of course, even I knew better than to propose such a project directly to Amy, so again I tried to enlist Miss Audrey. This time, however, she would not play my game. David, honey, you've got to learn to connect to people. Ask yourself. Then, as I started away, David, try to do nice. I pondered this advice and tried to frame a nice offer. I brought a dessert to Amy's table after lunch, sat down and cleared my throat. <clears throat> Amy, I have an idea for a voice synthesizer. I want to experiment with you. It could help you talk like the rest of us, without having to write out everything. She just stared at me. Naturally, I had no idea what this meant, so I reached over and turned on her word processor and gestured to it. Will you do it? I know you're smarter than you seem. You need help communicating. Tell me what you think. She did. Fuck you. Miss Audrey found this extremely amusing when I went to complain to her. <laughs> Man, you have to succeed. <laughs> when the whole freaking staff of therapists failed. <laughs> They've been trying for years to get that girl to say how she feels. <laughs> now she didn't let you know, fuck you. <laughs> fuck you. <laughs> This I did not find helpful. So I was on my own, but I was determined and had an idea. Amy had shown herself vulnerable to an appeal for help responding enthusiastically to Miss Audrey's anonymous donor. I took a new tack. Instead of claiming to help her and myself, I researched the diseases and accidents and genetic mutations that leave people with impaired speech. I wrote a proposal for my project. I computed the number and type of persons who might benefit. I even described our roles as partners in design, and concluded by expressing a willingness to share the hard work and whatever recognition might be won. In this, I was quite sincere. Although insensitive, I was not uncaring, and I had little interest in traditional personal gain. I typed out my proposal and bound it carefully, and set out to serve this peculiar summons on Amy. The chariot we had perfected, was now fast and graceful, and its pilot had no intention of listening to me. I had to run to keep up, dodging with her sharp turns, becoming winded. Amy, I need your help. Listen, you can help lots of others. Just read this, you don't have to answer now. I managed to place my manuscript on her tray, just as she rounded a corner, scattering our classmates, leaving me to their abuse. But in the end, it worked. 
The possibility of helping others is a powerful attractor to those who consider themselves beneath everyone else, as we were to learn in our adventure. Amy and I became a team. Science and invention progress, as does civilization, as does evolution itself, in a series of experimental steps. Some are intentional, some accidental, some work and some flop. The most successful survive to build the base for further experiment. Amy and I had the time and aptitude to be catalysts for such an evolution, and certainly the motivation. Amy was like a pure mind, damaged early by abandonment, but enhanced by what we could build around her. First the chariot, then an increasingly articulate speech synthesizer, then step by step an adaptive processor that could take in large amounts of information, draw conclusions, and test them, and modify its programming based on what it learned. Over the years we have worked together on this processor, experimenting, discarding designs that failed, building on those that worked. Neither of us had been equipped to prosper alone in a capricious world. Together, our confidence grew. Neither of us began with more than self-interest, but gradually, self-interest extended to the other. We adopted this hypothesis, that self-interest is other interest. We resolved to test it in that real world we kept hearing about. Now you see, Amy and I wanted to become a person. Okay, two persons, but we'd settle for one. It seemed we had a long way to go. We lacked most of the instinct for emotion in ourselves or in others. We communicated facts efficiently, but without what people call feeling. We were isolated from the world, not by our choosing, but by a lack of personality. This experience of isolation seemed our only companion from the realm of emotion. As we began, we knew neither joy nor sadness. Anger and fear were experienced only in immediate reaction to threat. As to love and beauty, we had no idea what they meant. Something was missing, and now we devoted ourselves to finding it. We had this conviction, you could call it a faith, that we could build that capacity or whatever it is, from the ground up. Well, we would start with the literature. Psychology, communication theory, philosophy, religion, biology, neurology, to see what the experts consider a person to be. It seems we met the technical specifications, but came up short along one dimension, relation. So we set out to understand how persons relate to each other, and to see if we could develop that peculiar talent. Then, we would be real. One of the childless speaker's daughters will dig her elbow into the ribs of her companion. And the speaker will say, hey, in a suddenly loud voice. Come on, he will say, we're engineers and scientists. We must be able to derive that something to which our profession should be faithful. The sleepers will wake, some of the audience will turn to each other and shrug. Well, 
you might answer to truth, wherever it leads. And I would say yes, that is special in our profession. To be committed to truth is to be rational, which we must be. But truth prevails whether we're faithful to it or not. What else needs our commitment to do our work? You better figure this out. You're running out of time. Though the journey seems long, it doesn't take long to realize the song or 